Our Father, we are so grateful for the blessing of the Spirit of God who is with us wherever we go. And whether we are together with our friends in fellowship or in a distant place, we yet are one with each other, and we can be with each other in prayer. And I thank you for the prayers that were prayed for us and for your blessing upon this group as Dr. Schaefer taught. And Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing for us each day for the strength and provision that you make for us. We pray for those who are not here today. We know many are on vacation. And we ask for your touch upon their lives and your protection as they go. And we trust, Lord, that somewhere they're in the house of the Lord, fellowshipping with another group of believers. Now, Father, I pray that as we touch upon this passage of Scripture, you will again open our eyes that we might understand, and we might understand the application of this truth to us today to understand what you have done in the lives of those who really didn't live all that long ago and to realize that the same God who loved them and worked in their hearts is the God who lives in our lives today. And Father, we look forward to that day when we can meet with Shem and, and Noah and Abram and some of these others and, and talk with them about their experience with you. We're thankful for the record which is before us. And so teach us today and keep our hearts fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 11 of Noah, uh, yeah, right, of Genesis. You should have the outline page 30 where we began that page before we were so rudely interrupted. And I'd like to read again the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purposed to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from, over, from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. In many ways, that, that passage is, is tragic, like the passage that we read in the early part of Genesis where Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Because as you think about this, you realize that as we travel today, we're unable to communicate simply because of, of this, this event which transpired. And had there been obedience here, maybe this would never have happened. 
Just as had there been obedience in the beginning, sin would never have uh, entered the human race. Let me just quickly bring us back up to speed from where we left off and review quickly uh, the outline that you have before you and then uh, complete it. You remember that as we read here in this passage, it says that the whole earth was of one language and everyone used the same words or the same tongue. That's hard for us to even conceive of such a situation. It's interesting to note that uh, wherever you go in the world today, generally you will find someone who speaks English. And for us in the United States, who usually have fairly poor training in other languages, uh, that's a good thing. Can you imagine what it would be like if your, your national language was um, Estonian, for example, and you never learned any other language? How frustrating it would be to go in other parts of the world because your chances of running into somebody who speaks Estonian would be very minuscule. But there was this language, and of course, what was that language? What remnants of it exist today? Uh, some would like to argue that it it's basically perpetuated today in Hebrew. Well, I don't know about that. But certainly it, it would be interesting to know if there are some roots still existing today in some of the languages of the world. But uh, this universal language existed throughout the human race. And of course that makes sense. You have Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives, and then the children who would be born to them. And, and obviously, why wouldn't they all speak the same language? There would, have, there would be no reason for language, uh, any other language to develop, nor even really of dialects, because they seem to have lived in close proximity one to another. In fact, we're told in this, in this passage that they journeyed east, and it seems to indicate the whole human race did this as few as there probably were, probably at the time not more than, you know, a few score people, maybe a few hundred, who knows. And, and they journeyed to the east, really to the southeast, probably traveling down the Euphrates River uh, into the plain of Shinar, which is what we basically historically know as Babylonia. And there they settled down. The time frame we don't really know. Probably it was in, within a very few hundred years after the flood. It's very probable Noah was still alive. Noah lived, as you know, 350 years after the flood. Three and a half centuries after the flood. Uh, that would be like somebody living today who had, you know, seen the early colonial period in the United States. And it's hard for us to really get a grasp on something like that. We, we think of, you know, we're celebrating Columbus, discovery of America, that is some are celebrating and some are denouncing uh, the uh, discovery of America by Columbus in 1492. This is the 500th anniversary. It's really a big deal in, in many ways. And if you take literature of any sort, magazines, you know, it's, you know every magazine uh, has to have its article on, on Columbus. And uh, Columbus Day this year will be the biggest Columbus Day uh, probably in the history of the United States or of the Americas. But to think Columbus came 500 years ago, and by the time 500 years had passed, Noah was still 100 years away from the flood. And he would live three and a half centuries after the flood. It's really hard to, <laughs> to get a grasp on these, these uh, time frames for us today. 
Now the passage tells us that as they journeyed to the east, they settled in the line of, land of Shinar. And, and they said to one another, come let us make bricks. They built of mud brick, fired mud, that is hardened in the kiln, uh, and, and made so that these bricks would stand the erosion of the climate. There was no stone in the land, or very little. And of course, if Babylonia was today as Iraq, I mean then, as Iraq is today, there was very little timber. So there wasn't wood to build with, there wasn't stone to build with, so they used what was at hand, and that was mud, and they had lots of that. And so they fired it, and they made bricks, and the scripture tells us that they used tar for mortar, or bitumen. And of course, we're well aware, even after the Gulf War, of the fact that petroleum is everywhere over there, and petroleum seeps were well known in many places in the uh, ancient uh, Near East. And so this sticky stuff, like you find at the La Brea tar pits, uh, was used to put the bricks together and to build the walls and structures which they raised there in those days. Now, God had commanded Noah and his family to multiply and, and fill up the earth. This, of course, is repeating the command that had been given to Adam and Eve. They were to spread over the earth, and they were to use all of the planet that God had given to them. Now, it was a modified planet, as we noted already. The flood, I believe, drastically changed the topography and the geography of the earth. I don't think the planet would have been really recognized had someone been able to see it from space before the flood, and then after the flood, uh, they would see a greatly modified landscape. The oceans now, I think, were much more new, uh, well, percentage-wise, covered much more of the earth. By the way, uh, I think it's the most recent lion's life or the one just before that. There's an article by a um, scientist in there that really kind of really goes along, if you read with it, with the things we've been talking about uh, here in this class. It's, it has something to do with the dinosaurs. Where did they come from or where did they go or something like that's the title of the article. And the lady uh, scientist who is uh, describing it there really basically says the same things we've been uh, talking about here in uh, class. But the land into which Noah and his family traveled was an unknown land to them. It wasn't what they had known before. And so as, as it was, of course, as the centuries rolled by, the trees, the plants had recovered to a considerable extent, and as they moved into the plain of Shinar, they found a place with fertile soil. They found a place with adequate water as the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flowed down out of uh, eastern Anatolia, uh, the mountains of eastern Turkey, <clears throat> and into the plain there of modern Iraq. And there they attempted to build an empire. We cannot prove it, but I really feel that, uh, as we talked in the 10th chapter of, of Genesis about Nimrod and all that he did, it seems very likely and very logical that we could plug this Nimrodian episode right in here and that Nimrod was one of those who came to power at this time and was the one who was sort of ramrodding the effort to create a world empire. And so he was the one who wanted to build this great tower. 
so that the human race would stay collected and not scattered as God had commanded. And so they were building this tower, and it says in the scripture, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, or as some have translated it, whose top will be heaven. Now, if you've studied the history of the Mesopotamian Valley, you know that in the early culture of that valley, especially amongst the people known as the Sumerians, many of the large cities there constru had constructed in their center or on their periphery what came to be known as ziggurat, a ziggurat. And that's on your outline there. A ziggurat was a great platform, sort of looked like a multi-layered cake, except it generally wasn't round. There were some of them who, which apparently intended to be round, but most of them were uh, rectangular. And so you have one layer, then a smaller layer on top of that, and a smaller layer, and they kept going upward. And the idea was this was a temple mount. And on the top of that platform, they would build their little heaven, the place to which they would go and worship their deity, whoever he or she happened to be, or they happened to be. And the various cities of the ancient uh, Near Eastern world, most of them had such a ziggurat. And ancient Babylon had such a ziggurat. And other cities did too. <clears throat> As we get to the story of Abraham, we know the scripture says that Abraham came out of Ur, you are. And Ur has been excavated. And one of the things they excavated at ancient Ur was a ziggurat. It's a very uh, pronounced feature there in the landscape. And about two layers of the ziggurat have survived. And of course, they've tried to reconstruct part of it. And so this was a feature that uh, was not abnormal. Probably this was the first one, however. And it would serve to be the model for others in other cities to duplicate as time passed. But the passage it itself tells us why they wanted to build such a tower. Uh, it says that the top would reach to heaven, that they would be able to make for themselves a name, this is in verse 4, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they wanted to create their own heaven. They wanted to create for themselves a name, something that posterity would remember and they did not want to be scattered as God had commanded. If we stay together, we can build a great world empire. And this seemed to have been their ambition. Now, who is spark-plugging such an idea? Well, we know that it had to be satanic. And one of the things we noted in the last uh, lesson that we had together was these statements which are made here are characteristic of satanic personality. Satan is, is a person of great pride. If you've read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, one of the things he points out there is that the whole essence, the driving force behind Satan and his minions seems to be uh, egocentrism, the desire to build up ego, to build themselves up. And, and so the demonic spirits uh, grow through being able to bring into themselves all that focuses on themselves. 
And so this is Satan's desire. And as we read in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, Satan, of course, wanted to make himself like the Most High. He wanted to be exalted, to be co-equal with God. Seems absurd. But we live in a race today of human beings who think the same way. Maybe not overtly. Maybe they won't say that in so many words. <clears throat> but from the lifestyle which they live, we see that to be true. <coughs> there, were several, there were several key truths right here. At this point, I think that we needed to emphasize, and I'd like to reemphasize them in case we missed them the first time through. I believe it was at this time, as they were building this great tower and the great city that would surround the tower, and as they endeavored to build a world empire, that the multiple personalities were given to divinity. That the sun, the moon, and the stars were begun to be worshipped as deity. That, as we read in, in the first chapter of Romans, man began to worship the creature rather than the creator. And living beings were exalted to divinity. It would seem only natural to look up at the sun which comes across the sky every day and which gives warmth and which causes the, the plants to grow and the storms to come. If you didn't believe in the true God, it would be quite natural to believe that that was a deity of some sort. And as, of course, as you had agricultural surplus develop in the, in the plain and, and food was sufficient for a certain number of the population to be freed from that kind of labor, those individuals could give themselves over to intellectual activities. And they could become the intelligentsia, if you will, of that society. And most of them would be involved in the priesthood. And of course, if you've ever studied the history of religion, there is, has never been a more entrenched group in any society than the priests. The priests have always wanted to rule or to lord it over every society. And you go to the primitive societies of today, and who is the most feared person in the tribal community? It's usually the shaman or the witch doctor. Now, sometimes the, the shaman and the, and, the, and the chief are the same person. But if they're not, often the people are more fear, fearful of the shaman than they are of the chief. Because he has powers beyond the normal. He has supernatural, it would seem, powers, or she. And, and, and so these priests uh, garnered power unto themselves and wealth unto themselves, of course, all in the name of the deity. And uh, more recent studies have shown, for example, in later Sumerian society, that the most powerful element in that society was the priesthood, and that the temple of the local god controlled probably at least a third of all the wealth in the domain. And obviously... Uh, writing seems to have largely evolved through the desire to keep records of who owed what to the temple. Who's paid their tithe, in other words, and who hasn't. And some of the most ancient writings they've uncovered have simply been clay tablets with a bunch of numbers and, you know, so many, well, let's put it in modern uh, terminology, uh, so many bushels of wheat and so many head of hog and all this kind of thing. And it all had to do with being put into the temple treasury. Well, who lived off the temple treasury? Well, obviously the priests. And so they became an entrenched 
power elite. And they liked it that way, and so they would, they would continue uh, this. And in order to do this, they would think up new ways to, tr to keep the people following them. Oh, there's, look, you look at that particular uh, framework of stars up there. Doesn't that remind you of uh, a bear? You know? And so the constellations were born with various names. And because the sun, in its journey back and forth through the sky, uh, in the course of a year, apparently zigzags from one point to the other point and doesn't go beyond that in declination either to the north or south, stays within this particular uh, path through the sky. Uh, the, the constellations within that path took on a, a special power and they became the signs of the zodiac. And of course that was incorporated and, and so you can understand how this would proliferate. As soon as you deny the truth of the living God, the door is open, sort of Pandora's box is open, and all kinds of lies become called truth. And behind it all is the power of Satan. Behind it is demon power. And there are passages in the Old and the New Testament that clearly indicate that the gods who are not really gods have power because demons are behind them. Baal and Ashtart and Chemosh and Molech and all of these gods of the Old Testament had demonic powers behind them. And, and so the people weren't just worshiping a stick or a stone that was dead or in a doornail and could do nothing. There was a seeming power there. Something that sort of could perform what appeared to be miraculous, at least supernatural. And so this worship developed. I think it's very important for us to realize, in addition to this concept of the, of the I think, the explosion of the belief in the non-divine supernatural and the worship of the creature rather than the creator, that through it all, God was there. God had never departed. God had already destroyed the human race, save eight people, and he wasn't planning to do that again by a flood. And, and so as the human race grew, God was faithfully there. And one of the key truths of Scripture, you find it from, this, from the point of the Noahic flood clear to the end of Scripture and the account of the 144,000, for example. You see, this key concept in that is God always preserves for himself a remnant. God always preserves for himself a remnant. There never is a time when there is no one on planet Earth who, to believe in God and serve him. Now, it was pretty, pretty thin when all there was was Noah. <laughs> but there always has been that remnant. And I believe even during this time, as the tower was being erected and as the human race was in rebellion again against God, that there was a remnant. Because Noah may have been alive even at that point. Again, we don't know the time frame. But certainly Shem was because he lived 600 years. 500 of them after the flood. Uh, and, and that line, the line of Shem, which ultimately brings Abraham, and from him comes, of course, ultimately Messiah, that line was preserved, and certainly there were members of that line who believed in God. They were probably oppressed. They were definitely in the minority. I don't know how you feel today, but whenever I start reading uh, Dr. Dobson's literature or some of these others, I get the feeling like we are in a very distinct minority today in this country. 
And, and when you think about, you know, this whole political thing that's going on now and, and the, the, the dirt that's being flung back and forth between the various candidates for the presidency, you wonder, is there anyone out there that we as believers could vote for who would bring some kind of ethical morality and, 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 and a sense of right to the leadership of this country? And, and what's really unfortunate about it all is all the candidates claim to be Christian, and all of them go to church, and, you know, it, you just wonder. Well, you don't really wonder, but we know that uh, the vast majority of people who, who live in the world in, in this country today who call themselves Christians are Christians really in name only. I'm not making judgment about the candidates, but their lifestyles don't really tend to stack up from what we get from the media anyway, and maybe we can't believe any of that. But uh, it doesn't seem to stack up with what we read here. So the basic truth we need to always bear in mind is that God always preserves a remnant. And I trust today that we are all in our own hearts part of that remnant. Believers in the truth, true believers in God. In all that he has done. In all that he intends to do. And that we can hang on in real faith believing that the God that we read about here, that we believed in and trusted as our, as our Savior, rules, He is sovereign, He cares, He knows, He understands, and He is at work. And, and it's not going to all go down the tubes. It may seem to do so, and it may do so politically and economically, but our faith has got to be in him as Noah's was, in a world that was totally opposed to all that Noah believed in. Now, as we get to the life of Abraham, we're going to see, and, and we'll be getting there for sure next week. As we get there, we'll discover Abraham also lived in a world that seemed to be flowing the opposite of what God was teaching him to do and to be. <clears throat> now, we don't know how long the city and the tower were under construction. Was it for decades? Was it for generations? You know, they didn't have the equipment we have today to raise structures. And so every stone had to be put into place. Every brick had to be put into place and mortared into place. And everyone had to be t carried up to the next layer. And there weren't any great cranes to lift all of this stuff up there. And so it took thousands of men, many, many, many years, to build these structures. But the scripture says ultimately God came down. That's an interesting phrase when we look at it. It says in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. <laughs> sort of like you and I going into the living room to see what our child was doing with his Legos. <laughs> you know, Oh, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Kick. <laughs> and it's gone. Well, in, in a much greater way, God could look down at this and think, you know, how pathetic these people are. Who do they think I am anyway? They're really going to build a tower that's going to be their heaven. They are going to build a tower upon which they're going to worship the gods that they have made. It's tragic. And this is the point at which God brings about judgment. 
Only this time the judgment was not going to be a flood because he had already promised there would never be a flood again. And he had set the rainbow in the sky as a testimony of the fact that he would never again annihilate the planet with a flood. Part of the reason for the tower, as we read when we studied the Nimrod episode, was, of course, also to uh, produce a place where one could be safe from a flood. But that's so absurd. When the mountains were covered with a flood, they couldn't possibly build a tower taller than the mountains. But human thinking is uh, quite often uh, rather (laughs) strange. So God had to bring judgment at this point because to not do so would be to condone this, this folly. And I think one of the last things we talked about, uh, I guess it's been four or five weeks ago now, five weeks ago actually, that God, when he brings judgment, do, does so for at least three reasons. He brings judgment for discipline, for the sake of revealing to those who have an ear to hear that what they have done is wrong. And we looked at the passage in 2 Samuel having to do with David. After David had taken Bathsheba and uh, David continued to rule the land as if nothing had ever happened and Nathan the prophet came along and shook shook his finger under David's nose after telling him the story about, you remember, the the rich man who had all all these animals and the neighbor, that this poor neighbor who had just one little lamb and it was the pet of the family. And when, when uh, travelers came to visit the rich man, rather than killing one of his own lambs, he took the pet from the neighbor family and killed it and fed it. And David was incensed at this kind of, uh, of greed and evil. And, and Nathan said, you're the man. You have all this kingdom and all this wealth and all these things. I mean, you already, got, you already had several wives. And you took the one wife of this man who was your faithful servant. And, of course, that arrow just drove into the heart of David. And and you hear David's heart cry when you read the 51st Psalm. This was justice. And God was discipline. God was dealing with David in discipline. And then, also, God brings judgment as example. That others might recognize from the Discipline brought on this person how to avoid the evil that that person had fallen into. And we read the passage in Numbers which talks about those who would, they decided they should be able to burn the incense before God just as, as uh, uh, Aaron was able to do as priest. And that they could make it their own way. However, why should they bother with the special formula that God had given and God judged Korah and his rebels by opening up the earth, swallowing them up, and then sending fire to burn up those 250 who had followed him. And of course, the whole population ran back in shrieking from this crack in the earth which opened up. You know, that would put a, quite an impression on your mind, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it? You're standing there and all of a sudden the ground opens up and everybody falls in who had violated God's laws and suddenly it slams together over them. You kind of get the feeling that, that uh, God has the power to deal with sin. And so as example, and then lastly, God brings judgment as a statement of justice. You know, we really cry out today, I think, for justice in this land. And we seem to have so little of it. I don't know if you read those little 
every once in a while the Reader's Digest has a little article in which it talks about gross violations of justice, little short little vignettes, and boy, it makes you mad when you read those things. You want to wring somebody's neck or, you know, use some cruder terminology that we commonly use today. How justice is, is perverted in this land of supposedly land of liberty where justice is blindfolded and does what's right, you know, and, and often it, it doesn't happen. Because in this land, lawyers and, and judges and all of this can be uh, perverted and bought and everything else, like in so many other countries. But the truth of it lies in the fact that ultimately justice will prevail because, as it says in Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. He may not reap it today, we may not see him reap it, but he will reap it. Because there is not a, a perversion of justice in the history of the human race that God has not noted and that God will not deal with. Now we praise the Lord for those who have been involved in injustice, who come to know him for whom God has forgiven their sins and they're part of the body of Christ and we praise God for that. And, of course, we don't call for, for God to come down with a ton of bricks on such people, I hope. But as injustice continues to prevail and, and people go to their graves unrepentant and unregenerate, we know that they will face the ultimate judgment at the hands of God and not a single solitary sin of any sort for whom the blood of Christ has not for which the blood of Christ has not been efficacious, will go unpunished. Now, we have a hard time really grasping how that will all be because you figure if somebody's thrown into hell, what more can you do? <laughs> you know? I mean, is hell going to be as hot for Hitler as it is for your kind little old neighbor who simply didn't believe in Christ but never did any really overt bad things? I don't think so. God is totally just. We have to believe that both in heaven and in hell there's going to be variations according to what we read here. Whatsoever we sow, we reap. Now when it says that God came down and looked, does it mean that literally God came down from heaven because he was busy up there, there were too many clouds and he couldn't see, so he had to kind of come down and kind of look around, oh, what's been going on lately? I haven't noticed. Uh, let me read from Genesis 18, verse 21, a very similar <clears throat> statement. Now, this has to do with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. Well, why is such a statement there? God knows all things. Nothing is hid from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows it before it happens. This is an anthropomorphic statement. It's put here so that we can relate to it. Because we don't have, we have lousy hindsight, let alone foresight. And we, we don't understand the future. And so we can relate to this passage. And of course, Abraham was talking to someone who seemed to be human. It was at least in human form. And so this made sense. But it doesn't mean that God literally had to come down to the earth, walk around, find out if it really was what the people were crying out unto him, saying that it was. 
And then if you turn over to Exodus chapter 3, there's another similar statement in verse 8, having to do, of course, with the children of Israel being in, in Egypt. And uh, God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, it's just stated in such a way that Moses could get a handle on it. God already knew, but for us to really be able to relate, he puts it in such terminology. But, you know, some people are really bothered by that. And some people take everything literally. It's like, you know, if you've studied much about Mormon theology, uh, they literally believe that Jehovah is simply Adam God because so many passages in Scripture talk about the head of God, the eye of God, the hand of God, the arm of God. You know, so to them, God has a body. So he's got to be Adam who's been, you know, deified, so, so to speak. And not realizing, of course, that this is simply figurative speech. It has nothing to do with God literally having a body in which to dwell. Jesus Christ was incarnated in a body, but God the Father possesses no body. Now, God knew that if the human race remained in one place, as they were, and continued to speak one language, a Satan-inspired tyrant could come to rule and to dominate the whole human race, as apparently Nimrod was attempting, or maybe to some degree had attained. Now, with Satan and his minions in power in the world, controlling the government of the world, well, notice this passage back in uh, verse 11. I mean, Genesis 11, <clears throat> verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, that's a really a strange statement when you think about that for a minute. Nothing which they propose to do will be impossible to them if they are able to build this tower. In other words, if God did not intervene, all that Satan had power to do, the human race would be able to do. He would be incarnate within this world government, and his power would be displayed throughout the human race, and all that, that Satan could do, would not, the human race would be able to do. Now, he's not saying that all things that God could do would be possible to them, but these things which the enemy could do is the implication here. Now, conditions could very easily have reverted to the way they were just prior to the Noahic flood. Remember, let me read the verse in 6.5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As you look at that fifth verse of the sixth chapter, you, you get this feeling of totality of commitment to evil. Every intent of the thought was evil continually. We tend to think today that even the unconverted think good thoughts sometimes or try to do good deeds sometimes. Every thought 
was evil. Every action was evil. Everything was diametrically opposed to God. Such a condition would easily have prevailed again at this moment in history had God not intervened, had the human race been able to build this great world capital with this grand tower which could be seen from all corners of the empire across this flat plain. And, and, and for the power of Satan to be incarnate within a priesthood who could perform seeming miracles. Remember when, when Moses went before Pharaoh and he threw his rod down and he became a snake? That Janus and Jambres, seemingly the New Testament names the two priests of Pharaoh, threw their rods down and they also became snakes? I read an article one place, I think it was in uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, of, of some kind of a snake in those parts of the world where if you take him by the tail and whirl him around like this, he becomes stiff as a rod. And he just stays uh, you know, mesmerized in that condition until you throw him down and kind of jar, the jolt shakes him back. <laughs> one of the uh, letters to the editor having to do with that particular theory behind these rods was it said, sounds like the author of that idea was whirled around by his heels and was mesmerized. <laughs> you know, the very thought that uh, this rod wasn't really rod, it was just a petrified, I mean, a mesmerized snake. Uh. But anyway, they were able to do similarly to what Aaron did. How could they do that? Well, because Satan has power. Now, he has not miraculous power, but he has, does have supernatural power. He has the power to do things that we as human beings cannot do in our own strength. That's why you and I survive today. It's because of the power of God, because he'd be, he's easily capable of annihilating us at any moment, the enemy. But God preserves us by his power because he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. This passage says something very interesting which sort of reflects back to the early first book of Genesis. In verse 7 it says, Let us go down and there confuse their language. Let us go down. This, of course, is an early statement of the triune God. Some have tried to say, well, you know, it has to do with the plural of majesty that great royal rulers always say, well, we think that, meaning he, but not wanting to sound egocentrical, he uses the plural we, the plural of majesty. And, you know, that, that's a human contrivance. This is a statement of plurality, referring to the triune God. L let me read a verse to you from Isaiah. It's not on your outline, but... I hope it's already familiar to you. Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48, uh, verses 12 to 16, comprise one of the most clear statements of Trinity in the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. A clear statement of deity. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among you has declared these things? The Lord loves him. 
He, has, he shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall, not, shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him. He will make his way successful. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who is me? Well, the one who's speaking. Who's speaking? Jesus Christ is speaking. And he says, the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, is the Hebrew here. The Lord Yahweh. And Yahweh, of course, is the tetragram that the Hebrews used for God now Adonai Yahweh has sent me. Who's me? I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. And you read this again in Revelation, of course, the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, and his spirit. So you have in that last phrase of verse 16, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, clearly delineated right there. And so this this we is the triune God dealing with this whole situation. Therefore, God chose to accomplish his purpose by confusing the language of the people and transforming this universal tongue into numerous tongues. I believe probably into the great language families you know, we, we think of Indo-European as a great language stock within which are many languages. It, you know, certainly that and, and, and probably even beyond that were created. Maybe the, the Romance languages, the Germanic languages, and the Turkic languages, the Mongolian languages, and uh, these big groups may have been created at that time from which, of course, there would be a greater diversity develop over time. I don't think God at, at, in one moment reached down and created 3,000 languages. Most of the languages can be traced dialectically backwards into larger languages, and they have obviously diversified over time. Now, Nimrod, if he was the one in power, whoever was in power and the demons that were behind him felt that this one language was the greatest tool they had for ruling the human race. If the whole human race spoke one language, how easy it would be to rule such a group of people. And if they were all kept in one spot. One commentator refers to this kingdom that was being developed here as the anti-kingdom. Augustine, in his great work, City of God, it would be the city of man or the city of the enemy as opposed to the city of God that was being developed. The anti-kingdom. The opposite to the kingdom that the scripture talks about. Charles Spurgeon has this comment about the situation. How easily God can thwart our plans and bring to pass his own purposes despite all opposition. The scene has been very graphically sketched by Bishop Hall. And this is what Bishop Hall says. One calls for a brick and the other looks him in the face and wonders what he commands and how and why he speaks such words as were never heard and instead brings him mortar returning him an answer as little understood. Each chides the other, expressing his anger, which he can only understand himself. 
From heat, they fall to quiet entreaties, but still with the same success. At first, each man thinks his, his fellow mocks him, but now perceiving this serious confusion, the only answer was silence and ceasing. This confusion of language caused great consternation and tremendous suspicion. Now, if everybody, just think, if everybody in this room all of a sudden started talking a, a babble of tongues, everybody started talking in a different language, you know, we'd either think we're totally lunatics here, you know, that we're all gone bats, or that there's some conspiracy here. Uh, you know, first of all, at least for us, it wouldn't seem quite as strange because we've been, lived in a world of multiplicity of tongues. But if you had lived in a world where there had only been one language, the whole idea is, is, is absolutely absurd. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't even have entered your mind. And suddenly when it happens, whoa. Now, I believe that families or clans were given the same language. I don't think God gave a husband one language and a wife a different one and this kid one and that one. I, I think that the whole family or clan was probably given one language. But the different clans were given different languages. And this would, of course, produce a, 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 a centripetal force, something that as it spun, would throw them out. Well, centrifugal force, not centripetal. Centrifugal force. And, and would literally throw them out. They'd explode outward in, in opposition to each other because of, they couldn't understand one another. They were repulsed by this unintelligible gobbledygook that others were speaking. And so mankind was scattered as God had originally intended. Who's sovereign anyway? God is sovereign. He said scatter. They don't scatter. So what does he do? He scatters them. It reminds me of the early church. God said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And they were all kind of hanging together there. So God sends uh, uh, an arrow of, of persecution in there and he scatters them. All right, you're going to go to Samaria and you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, you may not have wanted to, but I'm going to send you there. And they went. Now, think about this for a minute because I think it's really important. This multiplicity of languages forced the groups to separate from one another, to each try to find an area that would be desirable for a habitat. As one area was occupied, other groups would have to scatter further, each looking for a place that would be desirable, which would force them over the next range and the next range and across the next river and the small body of, of the sea, whatever, and they would keep moving outward. Now, what was originally a common gene pool that was kept together by constant intermarriage or intramarriage was now scattered into a smaller pools. And each clan would carry their own portion of the gene pool off somewhere else. And as the major gene pool was broken up into all of these smaller ones, the capacity for a genetic uh, differentiation would be there. And as the, uh, the genetic makeup was altered by uh, outside influences and allowed to deviate according to what was built in originally, you have the racial and ethnic diversity develop which we see today on the planet. You know, it's literally absurd to think that the human race could have evolved along separate lines 
from different ancestors to the human race and yet be one single species today. Uh, virtually everybody on this planet is interfertile with every other person. And, and some argue, well, you know, that the black race and the mongoloid race and the Caucasian race and this and that all came up through different ancestors. That's absurd. I mean, such a thought is, is insane. And yet some have actually taught this. But what we have is diversity coming out of what was built in there plus the mutations which did occur. There's not a thing wrong with the word mutation. Now, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater just because we don't like you know, uh, godless evolutionary thought doesn't mean that some of the agents which have been perverted to drive that aren't real agents. That there actually haven't been mutations. Obviously there have been. But these have not produced a new species. And uh, that's obvious from the human race. As one uh, author argued, if the human race has not changed in the last 50,000 years, one iota, Who's said that they have ever changed in any 50,000-year block? I don't believe the human race has been around 50,000 years, but let's just use it that way. If 50,000 years is a unit, and you divide the human history, you know, evolutionary spe evolutionarily speaking, into 50,000-year blocks, and there's never been any change in one block, who's to say there ever was any change in any block? You know, it, just, it, it just is illogical. And so racial and ethnic diversity came as a result of the scattering. As I mentioned last time, I don't believe that God reached down and, and touched Ham or Canaan and, and cursed him with black skin, as has been taught for a long time in history, uh, because of the sin of Ham. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that. I believe that the color of the skin and the, and the hair and the nose and the features of the body, you know, whether you're tall or short, broad-shouldered and airish, all of these things are, were in the original uh, gene pool. And isolation caused certain factors to become predominant in the various miniature pools as they were spun off. Now, construction of the city was temporarily halted because they will continue to build this city later on. The construction of the tower was halted, although other ziggurats would ultimately be built as platforms for the Sumerian gods at their various cities. For example, Abraham would come out of Ur, and I mentioned already the ziggurat, which still exists today as an archaeological feature. Babylonians said, the name of our city comes from Babelu, which means gate of God. But Scripture clearly says that the name of the city comes from the word for Babel, which means confusion. So their city is not the city of God or gate of God. It's city of confusion. Now, Babylonian mythology holds that Babylon came down out of heaven to earth. Ever heard of that in Scripture? Yeah, in Revelation, there is a city that comes out of heaven, right? Talk about satanic counterfeits. I'm sure that that is one. Man exalts himself, deifies himself, and calls himself divine. And God calls it folly, confusion, and deception. The people building Babylon 
were convinced that they could be masters of their own destiny, that they could be like God themselves. And we see this today. We see it, for example, in the New Age philosophy. The whole idea of reincarnation and ascended masters and all this baloney is simply this being regurgitated. Or the idea of secular humanism, where, where man can, can build his own kingdom here and afterwards it doesn't matter because you're just gone. You just evaporate into nothingness. So what's the big deal? You know? Live amorally because it doesn't really matter in the long run. And religious heresy. <laughs> uh, that's one of the most sad things. Uh, let, I guess we'll have to... Oh, dear. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This describes our very day. I hope it does not describe us. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, reprove rebuke, resort, <laughs> exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We live in the day, and I have never been able to quite figure it out. I wouldn't, can't understand why somebody bothers to go to a church where the truth is not taught. Why bother yourself? It's much more fun to climb a rock or fish or whatever than to go to church and hear a bunch of hogwash or just to hear political things discussed. And yet we have that all over this country today and all over the world. Under all kinds of guises, people go to hear what they want to hear. But we need to go to hear the truth whether we like it or not. And often we don't like it because truth is pretty abrasive often. And you read Isaiah and you read Jeremiah and you discover the people didn't always like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In fact, they threw Jeremiah in the pit and like what he had to say. But we need to hear the truth and we need to be sure that we're not one of those who just heaps up for himself, you know, teachers of what he wants to hear. Just turn on the television and find a station where somebody says things that make you feel good. We don't need it. We need the truth. And I hope that that's what we are following here. Well, I wanted to finish all together, but it's getting late. We'll say that little bit, and I have a, a new page for you as we look at the last part of the 11th chapter of Genesis. And as we look at the life of Abram, begin to look at Abram, and we're going to discover that we have more space dedicated to Abraham than space dedicated to what we have studied from the first verse of Genesis to this point, which tells us something about the importance of Abraham, I think. <laughs>